the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today we'll talk with Jeff Lucas. He is the author of Notorious, an integrated study of the rogues, scoundrels, and scallywags of Scripture. Hmm, that's coming up this hour. Then we'll trace what's happened today uh, with regard to the impeachment inquiry that's ongoing. A letter from the White House, other uh, disclosures, that's coming up in the second hour of today's program. First, to look at some of the day's headlines. Immediately after learning secondhand information from a White House official about President Trump's July 25th phone call with the president of Ukraine, the first whistleblower wrote a dramatic personal memo saying the White House official characterized the call as crazy and frightening. It has been learned. In a two-page single-spaced memo on the on the 26th of July, the day after the Trump-Zelensky phone call, the whistleblower wrote that the conversation with the unnamed White House official only lasted a few minutes, and as a result, I only received highlights. In contrast to a publicly released transcript of the July 25th phone call, the two-page memo used dramatic language. According to the memo, the White House official described the July 25th call as crazy, frightening, and completely lacking in substance related to national security, end quote. Well, the emergence of the whistleblower's memo came as a source told the uh, media that Intelligence Community Inspector General Michael Atkinson, in testimony to House lawmakers, could not explain what accounted for the 18-day window between the July 25th call and the whistleblower's August 12th complaint filing, or when exactly the whistleblower contacted a key Democratic uh, staff. According to the Washington Post, House Democrats are considering steps to keep the whistleblower's identity from their Republican colleagues in order to prevent a loyalist to the president from leaking the whistleblower's identity to the public. In addition, House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff, House Oversight and Reform Committee Chairman Elijah Cummings, and House Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Elliot Engel all issued subpoenas on Monday to the Pentagon and the White House Office of Management and Budget for documents related to Trump's call. And Energy Secretary Rick Perry on Monday denied rumors that he would resign amid allegations he played a role in the controversy surrounding President Trump and Ukrainian officials. While Democrats have been calling for the president's impeachment over his alleged soliciting of assistance from foreign countries ahead of the 2020 election, it has um, an unearthed comment, I should say, from February of 2000 might show Stones were being thrown from glass houses. On his show on Monday, Tucker Carlson discussed a transcript of a call between former President Bill Clinton and then-UK Prime Minister Tony Blair the same year as the election uh, pitting Clinton's Vice President Al Gore against George W. Bush, during which the ex-president asked his British counterpart for a political favor. You've heard endlessly on cable news that it is unprecedented the president would seek political gain from a conversation with a foreign leader. Well, it turns out 
It happened before and probably more often than we know. President Trump on Monday vigorously defended his decision to withdraw United States troops from northern Syria ahead of a planned invasion of the region by Turkey, even as his Republican allies in both the Senate and the House vehemently criticized that move. In his first public comment since um, news broke early on Monday of the troops' withdrawal, the president said he understood the concerns raised by his fellow Republicans, but added that it was time to fulfill his campaign promise to bring the troops home. The GOP lawmakers who have stood lockstep with the president on almost every other issue have expressed concern that the withdrawal could lead to a genocide of the U.S. Kurdish allies and a return to power of the Islamic State in the region. Nikki Haley, former U.S. ambassador to the U.N., uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Senator Lindsey Graham, Senator Ted Cruz of Texas and Representative Liz Cheney of Wyoming, all Republicans, were just a few of the prominent Republicans who voiced opposition to the president's decision. The Hong Kong Stock Exchange officially dropped its takeover bid for its London counterpart on Tuesday. Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing Limited said it was unable to engage with managers of the London Stock Exchange Group. The London Exchange cited concerns, including the Hong Kong Exchange's ties to the government of the Chinese territory. The Hong Kong Exchanges made the surprise $36.6 billion offer in mid-September. Kroger has become the the latest grocery retailer, rather, to ban the sale of e-cigarette products in its stores. It joined Walmart and Rite Aid, which ended sales early this year. Walgreens also said it would end sales of e-cigarettes and related items. E-cigarettes, which explode into uh, into popularity in the last few years, have suddenly come under a blitz of public scrutiny as vaping-related illnesses have claimed at least 18 lives, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. There's another 1,080 probable cases across 48 states and the U.S. Virgin Islands, the agency noted. Well, most illegal crossings in 12 years, that's what the Border Patrol uh, says of 2019. It took 851,000 into custody during this fiscal year, which ended at the end of September. And the federal deficit rose to $984 billion this year, the highest in seven years. Intelligence Community Inspector General Michael Atkinson could not explain the 18-day window between Ukraine call and the whistleblower complaint. Why that is relevant seems a bit of a mystery, but apparently it is. State Department has blocked Gordon Sondland, the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, from testifying in the Trump impeachment inquiry. More on that and the reasons behind it in the second hour. Representative Ilhan Omar, who allegedly married her own brother to circumvent immigration laws, filed for divorce from her second husband amid rumors well, I won't even get into rumors. Nonetheless, that is an, an event. National Basketball Association is groveling before communist China after the Rockets general manager speaks up in support of Hong Kong. That apparently was not um, embraced by the communist Chinese government who canceled all of the programming for the remainder of the season. And a survey reveals nearly six in 10 Americans think most gun deaths are murders, but they're not. Iran uh, is uh, suing the United States over the breach of the nuclear deal. The lawsuit will go into the International Court of Justice. And President Trump on Monday oversaw the signing of two limited trade deals with Japan, slashing tariffs on $7.2 billion worth of American agricultural exports, but avoiding thorny issues such as auto tariffs. On this day in 1998, the House of Representatives triggered an open-ended impeachment inquiry against President Bill Clinton in a 258 to 176 vote, 31 Democrats joined majority Republicans in opening the way for nationally televised impeachment hearings. 
So far in 2019, there has been no impeachment vote. On this day in 1871, the Great Chicago Fire erupts. Fires also break out in Peshtigo, Wisconsin, and in several communities in Michigan. On this day in 1956, Don Larson pitches the only perfect game in a World Series to date as the New York Yankees beat the Brooklyn Dodgers game five, two to nothing. On this day in 2005, a magnitude 7.6 earthquake flattens villages in the Pakistan-India border, killing an estimated 86,000 people. And finally, on this day in 2017, Harvey Weinstein is fired from the Weinstein Company amid allegations that he was responsible for decades of sexual harassment against actresses and employees. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with author Jeff Lucas. He's also a pastor. He's the author of Notorious, an integrated study of the rogues, scoundrels, and scallywags of Scripture. Also in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll take a look at what's happening on the impeachment front. It's just an inquiry inquiry at this point, but uh, Republicans are pressing for more. The White House declares we're not cooperating under these circumstances. That and more in the 5 o'clock hour. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, there was a news conference held jointly by the Women's Liberation Front, or WOLF, and Concerned Women for America. WOLF is a radical feminist organization, and Concerned Women for America is a conservative advocacy group. But both oppose the erasure of women's protections threatened by the transgender movement. The news conference coincided with the Supreme Court hearings oral arguments in the case of a Christian funeral home sued for basing its understanding of sexuality on biology and the Bible. Well, Sarah Perry, director of partnerships at Family Research Council, dedicated her remarks to highlighting the particular vulnerability of autistic children to the transgender ideology, saying young people on the autism spectrum feel fundamentally different from their peers and often struggle to assimilate. Assimilate, rather. They are prone to obsessions, less inhibited by social maxims, and have difficulty learning from other people. Some autistic youth may feel disconnected from their physical selves or are uncomfortable with their bodies, particularly true for young women with autism going through puberty. Every one of these traits can be wrongly attributed to gender incongruity. Uh, it's generally referred to as uh, gender dysphoria. So when gender transition takes place and social and communication difficulties still remain, these children can be left feeling even more anxious or depressed than before. Fixed gender identities take longer to develop for individuals with autism than for typically developing uh, uh, youth. As a result, many teenagers with autism who don't conform to gender expectations ultimately accept their birth sex She continued to uh, diagnose those children as transgender and facilitate body altering treatments when another uh, condition is to blame is like cutting off a leg uh, for someone who believes they are an amputee when they are not. By ignoring underlying conditions, the demands of transgender supremacy marginalize our unique kids, especially those with autism and mental health diagnoses. Now, the issue before the court has to do with an individual who was an employee at a funeral home and the definition of um, sex in the federal employment statute. So that was a bit far afield, but it does relate to an article I recently read at redstate.com. Thousands who underwent transition surgery for their gender dysphoria now want reversals. Uh, They point out that a new report uh, reveals that those who considered themselves transgender and underwent the life-altering surgeries that allow you to transition from one sex to another are now seeking reversals for said surgeries by the hundreds. The report came in from a video that featured an anonymous girl identified only as Ruby, who made the decision to identify as a man back when she was 
13 years old. Now she's 21 and has decided that the alterations she had made to her body through chemicals haven't made her any better. Ruby is now detransitioning to fully embrace her female body and instead work on her mental issues. Sadly, the uh, she confessed that there has been virtually zero support for this decision within her community. But according to Sky News, the community is out there. In fact, a former transgendered person, Charlie Evans, came across a community of 5,000 people who wish to detransition, as they call it, back into their uh, given selves. In fact, Evans noticed a pattern. I'm in communication with 19 and 20 year olds who have had full gendered reassignment surgery who wish they hadn't, and their dysphoria hasn't been relieved. They don't feel better for it, says Evans. I think some of the common characteristics are that they tend to be around their mid-20s. Uh, they're mostly female and mostly same-sex attracted and often autistic as well. They don't know what their options are uh, at that point. Evans has now started the Detransition Advocacy Network to support people like herself and Ruby. And while this is considered to be uh, new news by the mainstream media, the truth is that it's something that's been happening for some time. A year ago, it was reported that scientific research had been attempted to try to see what the repercussions were of transition surgeries after one surgeon who specializing in these uh, these things had become overwhelmed with requests from post-op transgendered individuals to put them back the way they were before the surgeries. A researcher named James Caspian approached a university to get funding for these studies, and after being approved, he found his approval quickly revoked as the ethics board of the university faced backlash by the transgender activist community. Since this report was released last year, one can only fathom how many people have come to the same conclusion as Ruby, yet no one is allowed to talk about it in an official capacity over fears of social and political backlash. This is tragic when you think about all the people who are being hurt by the lie that cutting your body up will make you feel so much better. As has been uh, seen repeatedly by researchers, it doesn't. Having gender dysphoria already carries with it an, an abnormally high suicide rate that increases 19 times after transition surgeries. Research needs to be done, and these people need to find help, not more lies. Now, it's... um. A rather interesting study, and it's certainly not true of everyone who goes through the process, but a significant enough number that it ought to be taken more seriously than apparently uh, it has been. Well, the White House outlined in a defiant eight-page letter to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and top Democrats uh, today why it will not participate in their illegitimate and unconstitutional impeachment inquiry, charging that the proceedings have run roughshod over congressional norms and the president's due process rights. The administration officials call the letter, uh, which was written by White House counsel Pat Cipollone and obtained um, perhaps the most historic letter the White House has sent. The document tees up a heads-on collision with Democrats in Congress who fired off a slew of subpoenas in recent days concerning the president's apparent efforts to get Ukraine to investigate political foe Joe Biden's son. President Trump and his administration reject your baseless, unconstitutional efforts to overturn the democratic process, the letter stated. Your unprecedented actions have left the president with no choice in order to fulfill his duties to the American people, the Constitution, the executive branch, and all future occupants of the office of the presidency. President Trump and his administration cannot participate in your partisan and unconstitutional inquiry under these circumstances, end quote. Well, the document concluded the president has a 
country to leave. The American people elected him to do this job, and he remains focused on fulfilling his promises to the American people. Substantively, the White House first noted in the letter that there has not been a formal vote in the House to open an impeachment inquiry and that the news conference held by Pelosi last month was insufficient to commence the proceedings. In the history of our nation, the House of Representatives have never attempted to launch an impeachment inquiry against the president without a majority of the House taking political accountability for that decision by voting to authorize such a dramatic constitutional step, the letter stated. It continued, without waiting to see what was actually said on the call, a press conference was held announcing an impeachment inquiry based on falsehoods and misinformation about the call. Despite Pelosi's claim that there was no House president, that the whole House vote before proceeding with an impeachment inquiry, several previous impeachments, and there have only been a few, inquiries have been launched only by a full vote of the House, including the impeachment proceedings concerning former President Andrew Johnson, Richard Nixon, and Bill Clinton. White House officials uh, said that the voting, uh, the vote rather, opening the proceedings was a small ask, considering the implications of potentially overturning a national election. The letter went on to note that information has recently come to light that the whistleblower had contact with House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff's office before filing the complaint, and that Schiff's initial denial of such contact caused the Washington Post to conclude that Chairman Schiff clearly made a statement that was false. The letter added, in any event, the American people understand that Chairman Schiff cannot covertly assist with the submission of a complaint, mislead the public about his involvement, read a counterfeit version of the call to the American people, and then pretend to sit in judgment as a neutral investigator. The letter was um, uh, dinging Schiff for reciting a fictional version of the Trump call with Ukraine's leader during a congressional hearing. Schiff later called his uh, statements a parody, but he had the actual text in front of him but chose to parody the content. Perhaps the best evidence that there was no wrongdoing on the call is the fact that after the actual record of the call was released, Chairman Schiff chose to concoct a false version of the call and to read his made-up transcript to the American people at a public hearing, the letter stated. The chairman's actions only further undermines the public's confidence in the fairness of any inquiry uh, before his committee. Well, we'll talk more fully about that in the five o'clock hour. But this was the letter that uh, the eight page letter that was sent by the White House uh, to members of the various committees and Speaker Pelosi uh, today as to why they do not intend to participate under these circumstances in what the uh, letter White House counsel refers to as an illegitimate and unconstitutional impeachment inquiry. Coming up, we're going to talk with uh, pastor and author Jeff Lucas. Notorious is the title of his book, an integrated study of the rogues, scoundrels and scallywags of Scripture. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. Now, can we learn something good from the rogues and the scoundrels and even the scallywags of the Bible? Well, my next guest says yes. In his new book, Notorious, an integrated study of the rogues, scoundrels, and scallywags of Scripture, Pastor Jeff Lucas invites his readers to examine the antagonists from Scripture and to discover what we can learn from them. Notorious is a nine-week personal and group study into the stories of villains of the Bible. You know, guys like Cain, the elder brother, 
you know, the prodigal. Potiphar's wife, Saul, the persecutor, Jezebel. Every session has six days of Bible notes to read, and it's structured around uh, questions to help connect if you're in a group. Key thoughts for the session, scripture readings, a reflection on the Bible passages, and questions for study and discussion once you've uh, gotten through it. Well, my guest is Jeff Lucas, an author, speaker, pastor, and broadcaster. His passion is to equip the church with practical Bible teaching marked with vulnerability and humor. He's a former vice president of the Evangelical Alliance UK. He's a best-selling author of 26 books that have been translated into multiple languages. He's currently a teaching pastor at Timberline Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Joins us today to talk about his latest book, simply titled Notorious, an integrated study of the rogues, scoundrels, and scallywags of Scripture. Thank you so much for joining us. Georgian, great to be with you. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, I have to tell you, I was relieved to find that my name wasn't in one of these chapters because, you know, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So uh, it, it does us well, I suppose, to take a look at those who are mentioned in Scripture for various reasons. Uh, tell us a little bit about your passion to equip the church with practical Bible teaching that's marked by vulnerability and humor. Now, these are not two things that one would necessarily put together. Well, Georgine, I think that uh, sometimes as Christian leaders have mistaken projecting an image with um, uh, being an example, and those are two completely different things. And so vulnerability as fellow travelers in the journey, capable of great good, as many of the biblical heroes are, and also capable, frankly, of great evil, as some of these so-called scallywags are, I think there's a a difference between projecting an image and and being uh, an example. And so some of these characters have just so intrigued me, not least because I think, um, for example, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that Israel's negative example is given to us to show us uh, how not to make the same mistakes. And I think as we look into some of these characters, we can look at the pathway we trod and avoid the mistakes that they made. We tend to be drawn to those heroes, people we aspire to be like. But this study really focuses on those who are certainly less than heroic. Um, What can we learn from them and what motivated you to focus on lessons that they can teach us? Well, I think, first of all, sometimes we we can be quick to categorize people. They're either good or bad or sound or unsound. And when you look at some of these characters, I mean, it's difficult to find anything redeeming about Jezebel, the Cruella de Vil of the Old Testament, or Herod the Great, who certainly wasn't so great. But I do think that, um, as, for example, we look at Cain and Righteous Abel, that story which, frankly, I found frustrating through the years as I've looked at it. Why was it that Cain's offering was refused? That seemed kind of arbitrary. But then as you dig a little deeper and consider that commentators believe it's possible that Cain, very likely that Cain was offering worship his way. Well, what a statement that is to make in our modern era when worship can be a consumer product. It can be about my practices rather than ministering to God. And then as Christians, when we get upset about worship styles, and we're pretty Mm. good at that too, what we then do is drag God into our preferences. I don't like it, and God doesn't like it either. And so there's just one example of how an ancient story can speak to a contemporary situation. That is so wise to take a closer look, because sometimes we give the rogues a cursory reading without considering that they are mentioned in Scripture for a purpose, and there's something in their stories that we can glean that may save us from making similar mistakes. 
Absolutely. I mean, the elder brother in the prodigal story, obviously he's not a historical character. He's a character in a parable that Jesus told. But right there is an example of how passion, passionate spirituality even, can be so misguided. Obviously, in that situation, Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, guys who prayed two to three hours a day, endlessly talked about the Torah and their interpretation of it. They were passionately sold out to what they believed was God's agenda, but they got it so totally wrong. And as we look at the elder brother in the prodigal story, there's singing and dancing, and uh, everyone's happy, with the probable exception of the fattened calf. But the older brother is outside with his arms folded, effectively singing, we shall not be moved. And we see there a portrait of how we can be passionate, but, but actually wrong in our passion. Uh, a solitary lesson, I believe, for all of us. Absolutely. How did you decide which antagonists to include in the study and which ones to leave out? Well, I think, um, Georgine, I was... I, I, it was really a, a case of uh, interest and fascination. Uh, and then just looking again at familiar stories, difficult stories as well, like, like Judas. I mean, without a doubt, his is perhaps the most difficult story in the whole study. Again, when you dig deeper, why did he betray Jesus? Well, there's the money involvement and all of that. But the, the strong possibility that Judas was frankly disappointed with Jesus. He wanted Jesus to be that military messiah that would kick out the nasty Romans, set up earthly thrones in Jerusalem. And now, as he stage manages this betrayal, he's trying to spark a confrontation between Jesus and the authorities. And if you will, force Jesus to be what he wants Jesus to be. My goodness, I can look back over four decades of being a Christian and realized that there were times when I felt like God was someone that I could be man I could manage. And then when I realized I couldn't do that, I was disappointed by 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 that realization. And so again I think I, I was looking at um, digging deeper and then looking for those intriguing lessons that we can certainly apply to our own lives today. Now again our natural tendency is to um study the heroes because they have character and characteristics we want to emulate. But it's important for us to study the villains as well. Um, do we learn something different from them? Obviously, with the heroes, there are things that we want to emulate. With the villains, things that we want to avoid. What do we learn different f uh, about each of the two categories? Well, I think, I think that we can, we can trace destructive tendencies as we look at these characters, Michal, daughter of Saul, who was married to King David. And she is an example of how um, offendedness, which can start so small in our lives, can grow into something so destructive. David dances before the Lord. And notice she's always referred to as daughter of Saul and never wife of David. It's like she's trapped hmm. in that identity with, frankly, something of an abusive father. And um, and she's offended, and as a result of that, there is barrenness in in her life. Now, I'm not for a moment, and I, I'm always very careful when I talk about this, I'm not for a moment suggesting that barrenness is a result always of offendedness, and there's, there's never a, a kind of a, a cause or effect um, in that. But But how much does offendedness paralyze the church? Some Christians go to church to get offended. They're offended if they don't get offended. I think they've 
almost been offended since birth. You know, they got upset with the midwife. Don't you slap me. And if, if you want something to be offended about, then join the church because in our consumer culture, there's definitely something to be upset about if your preferences are paramount. But there's also hope in these stories, Georgine. So one of the characters is Saul the Persecutor, this murderous individual who was so passionate once again and so utterly wrong. And he became the Apostle Paul, the, uh, the great apostle of the New Testament church planter, gave us a third of the New Testament. And that speaks to us, I think, of the reality that wherever we've been and whatever mistakes we've made, we can change. It was, it was Popeye the Sailor Man who, who sang that song, I am what I am, and that's all I am. I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. This, <laughs> this surrendering to sameness that can take root in our lives. And Saul's story says that not only can we get a name change, but we can get a heart change. The gospel is about transformation. And so although there are lessons here about how we should not live, also, there's hope embroidered in these narratives as well. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Pastor Jeff Lucas, author of Notorious, an Integrated Study of the Rogues, Scoundrels, and Scallywags of Scripture. The book is published by David C. Cook. We'll be back to talk more in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with uh, Jeff Lucas. He is an author, speaker, pastor, and broadcaster. His passion is to equip the church with practical Bible teaching marked by vulnerability and humor. He's a former vice president of Evangelical Alliance UK, and he's a best-selling author of 26 books that have been translated into multiple languages. He currently teaches, uh, is the teaching pastor, I should say, at Timberline Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. The book we're talking about today, Notorious, an Integrated Study of the Rogues, Scoundrels, and Scallywags of Scripture. Let's talk about the structure of the book. It is a Bible study, and it's formatted in a way that one can certainly do it on their own, but also in a group, and there are other resources that support uh, the work as well. Can you uh, talk to us a bit about the Bible study as it's formatted? Yeah, that's that's really helpful, Georgine, because um, as you say, an individual can get this and and use it as a study, but there are also daily Bible reading notes, part of that book, so that they can follow this through throughout the nine weeks. There is um, There are discussion starters, that's kind of difficult if you're doing it by yourself, and so thoughts for consideration in the book as well. But then also there's a, an accompanying video that you can get, and that's got a drop-in teaching from like an FBI situation room setting for each of the small group um, sessions, if it's being used by a group. There's also sermon outlines and even slides that a church can take this and use this for the weekends, for daily study, uh, for small group study. So a church can take a complete journey through this together um, without uh, a lot of preparation. It's all there laid out for you. You know, I I so appreciate that because it would be easy to read a story, read the scripture about some of these uh, rogues and scallywags and just simply come to the conclusion that, boy, I I would never do that. I'm glad I'm not them without really going deep and recognizing what they can teach us and help us avoid doing in in the future. So this really does allow your readers to go deep. It does. And I think um, you you make an excellent point because sometimes um, we we fail because we don't recognize our own potential for failure. If you like, we don't do a risk analysis 
on ourselves. I remember um, some years ago speaking at a men's conference, Georgine, and we were talking about um, morality, sexual morality in particular. And I made the statement there, which was a bit of a stun grenade statement, and it was simply some of us have not actually strayed in our marriages, and it's not because we are especially noble or faithful, frankly, it's because we haven't had the opportunity yet and we haven't yet been tested. Um, And I don't mean that in a negative way. I just think it's a good thing to know where our weaknesses, where the fault lines in us are. And I'm I'm really hoping as people um, go through this study and just say, well, that's that's what they did. As you put it, I could never do that. (coughs) We'd be surprised at what we could do. Absolutely. The opportunity. Yeah. I mentioned it in the introduction early in our uh, conversation that I was glad to see that my name wasn't attached to one of the chapters. Uh, You mentioned that the antagonists of the Bible are more like us than we would like to think. We tend to overestimate our virtue and our capacity to overcome without recognizing our vulnerabilities. And the book really helps us to put those, uh, those things together. But talk a little bit about how these antagonists are more like us than we might care to admit and why it's important to recognize well, for example, there's a there's a session in the book that focuses not on an individual, but the mob in Thessalonica, yes. where the Apostle Paul was preaching. Right there, we have an example of mob group think, where people come to the conclusion that because everybody else believes it, therefore everybody we must all be right in in our collective viewpoint. Maya, what a what a lesson for us today. We're we're currently finding ourselves as as Christians living really as resident aliens, more in cultural Babylon than we might think. Uh, we find ourselves in a situation where often the liberal consensus, which which is all about tolerance, but there is not a tolerance of a view that steps outside the consensus view. And that can be difficult for us as Christians. We're basically called to be nonconformists and not to get out of step for the sake of getting out of step, but being willing to interrogate the consensus view and say, hold on a minute, just because everybody believes this and there is pressure upon us to believe it and go along with it as well, is it actually true? I think I'd need to say as well, Georgine, that leads me, if I, if I can say so, to a, to a concern about biblical literacy that we yes. have in these days. If we don't know what we believe, we are more likely to rush along with the crowd and, and bow the knee to the consensus. And so uh, just that mob, that, that um, frenzied group, can teach us something about perhaps the need to quietly, gently, respectfully break step. Let me just ask you one of the things that I'm hearing quite often with those who are followers of Jesus who believe that if I go with the crowd, then somehow I'm going to be, my message will be more accepted and therefore compromising my values in some areas might make the good news of the gospel more appealing. And yet, as you point out in this particular story, where there is a mob mentality that goes contrary to what is right and true um, is a, a pattern that we we shouldn't follow. Yeah, I think I think we've got to be sure that we don't label compromise always as being a dirty word. Um, I've been reflecting recently on on Daniel, and he's a hero, not a villain, so he's not in the book. But Daniel finding himself in exile, there were certain things about that, including uh, education in Babylonian ways. Um, there were certain things that he went along with and didn't make a fuss about, and there were other things 
particularly around worship, uh, where he drew the line and said, I'm sorry, I just can't cross that line. And so the story of, of Daniel and his friends involves a free furnace and a lion's den. But it's not all about ranting at the culture and saying we're different. And definitely it's not about insisting that everyone around us is different. Actually, in exile, the prophet Jeremiah um, told us uh, or taught a third way, which was pray for the, the the blessing of God, if you will, even upon those who have, have captured you upon your enemies. And that must have been such a shock to the mm-hmm. Jewish people. So it's not all about, um, it's always about um, making an argument about every issue, but it is having that sense of discernment and clarity. And if I can say so, even out of the Daniel story, a praying community that can help us keep generation of that wisdom that can help us to know when we need to stand our ground and when we need to be not quite so worried. As we mentioned earlier, the the book is designed with resources to help groups work their way through the book and this study of rogues and scoundrels. Is there, uh, would you say there's more of a benefit in doing this study with a group of people when possible, as opposed to studying it as an individual? Um, I always think, I think that whenever we can be in a in an environment of spiritual friendship that a small group offers, that that's an excellent catalyst for, for discipleship development. And so I'm, I'm kind of crazy about small groups and really believe in them. But I'm, I'm so grateful for the way that actually the editors of this have laid this out because an individual can work their way through it as well. So either opportunity is there. But always it's great to be in relationship with others and and to have the conversation because so often the conversation that is spurred is loaded with wisdom and we can benefit so much from that. Now, once again, I want to emphasize the uh, video series that consists of um, uh, sort of a companion piece to going through the book. Can you tell us once more about that and how uh, readers can avail themselves of that resource along with the book? Well, both... Both resources are available um, either separately or together. The idea behind this, Georgine, was that there are a lot of small groups that have facilitators rather than leaders, and with our busy lives, uh, they perhaps don't have the time and sometimes the gifting to prepare teaching to help nourish that small group. The idea behind this is you can drop the DVD into the player and there will be 10 to 12 minutes of of teaching instruction from from myself and from uh, a friend, a colleague, and that can be used um, as a catalyst for the rest of the conversation. And again, that could be used by the individual as well. And so both those resources are available either fully or together. Well, Pastor, we thank you so much for the book and challenging us to consider, as we ought, Uh, those who would be categorized as rogues, scoundrels, and scallywags of Scripture, lest we become rogues, scallywags, and scoundrels ourselves by uh, failing to to spend some time studying what they can teach us. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Georgie. Appreciate it very much. Again, the book currently available as well as the video series. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Seven minutes after five o'clock is our time. James Blend is today's producer. Clark Hilton is our engineer. 
Well, the White House announced it will not comply with the illegitimate and unconstitutional impeachment inquiry. That's the language in the letter. The document concluded that the president has a country to lead. The American people elected him to do this job and... He remains focused on fulfilling his promises to the American people. Substantively, the White House first noted in the letter that there has not been a formal vote in the House to open an impeachment inquiry and that the news um, conference held by Pelosi last month was insufficient to commence the proceedings. In the history of our nation, that's been a relatively small number of incidents, the House of Representatives has never attempted to launch an impeachment inquiry against the president without a majority of the House taking political accountability for that decision by voting to authorize such a dramatic constitutional step, the letter stated. It continued without waiting to see what was actually said on the call. A press conference was held announcing an impeachment inquiry based on falsehoods and misinformation about the call. Despite Pelosi's claim that there was no House precedent that the whole House vote before proceeding with the impeachment inquiry, Several previous impeachment inquiries have been launched only by a full vote of the House, including the impeachment proceedings concerning former presidents Andrew Johnson, Richard Nixon and Bill Clinton. Of course, Richard Nixon resigned before an impeachment. White House officials say that the vote opening the proceedings was a small ask, considering the implications of potentially overturning a national election. Well, the letter went on to note that information has recently come to light that the whistleblower had contact with House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff. Uh, his office before filing the complaint and that Schiff's initial denial of such content caused the Washington Post to conclude that Chairman Schiff clearly made a statement that was false. The letter added, in any event, the American people understand that Chairman Schiff cannot covertly assist with the submission of a complaint, mislead the public about his involvement, read a counterfeit version of the call to the American people, and then pretend to sit in judgment as a neutral investigator. The letter was ding, uh, dinging Schiff for reciting a fictional version of uh, the president's call. Ukraine's leader has said he felt Trump did nothing improper in their July call, and the Department of Justice lawyers who reviewed the call said they found no laws had been broken. The White House released a transcript of the conversation last month, as well as the whistleblower's complaint, which seemingly relied entirely on secondhand information. More on that shortly. Separately, the letter asserted multiple alleged violations of the president's due process rights. It noted that under current impeachment inquiry proceedings, Democrats were not allowing presidential or state Department counsel to be present. Democrats' uh, procedures did not provide for the disclosure of all evidence favorable to the president and all evidence bearing on the credibility of witnesses called to testify in the inquiry, the letter noted. Nor did the procedure afford the president the right to see all evidence, to present evidence, to call witnesses, to have counsel present at all hearings to cross-examine all witnesses, to make objections relating to the examination of witnesses or the admissibility of testimony and evidence, and to respond to evidence and testimony, end quote. Well, Democrats also have not permitted Republicans in the minority to issue subpoenas contradicting the standard bipartisan practice in all recent resolutions authorizing presidential impeachment inquiries. President Trump and his administration cannot participate in your, part- in your partisan and unconstitutional inquiry under these circumstances. Well, the letter went on from there. And uh, by the way, you can find it online if you'd like to read all eight pages of the very fine print uh, sent to Nancy Pelosi and Democrat House leaders.
Meanwhile, in an August 26th letter, the Intelligence Committee's Inspector General Michael Atkinson wrote that the anonymous whistleblower, we're talking about whistleblower number one, who set off the Trump-Ukraine impeachments fight, showed some indication of an arguable political bias in favor of a political rival candidate. A few weeks later, news reports said the whistleblower's possible bias was that he is a registered Democrat. That was all. Incredulous commentary suggested that Republicans who were pushing the bias talking points were so blinded by their own partisanship that they saw simple registration with the Democrat Party as evidence of wrongdoing. Now, however, there is word of more evidence of possible bias on the whistleblower's part under questioning from Republicans during last Friday's impeachment inquiry interview with uh, Atkinson. The inspector general revealed that the whistleblower's possible bias was not that he was simply a registered Democrat. It was that he had a significant tie to one of the Democratic presidential candidates currently vying to challenge President Trump in next year's election. Now, how relevant is that? Uh, We'll have to see how that plays out. What Atkinson said was that the whistleblower self-disclosed that he was a registered Democrat, that he had a prior working relationship with the current 2020 Democratic presidential candidate, uh, said a third person with knowledge of what was said. All three sources said Atkinson did not identify the Democratic candidate with whom the whistleblower had a connection. It's unclear what the working or professional relationship between the two was. In the August 26th letter, Atkinson said that even though there was evidence of possible bias on the whistleblower's part, such evidence did not change my determination that the complaint relating to the urgent concern appears credible, particularly given the other information the ICIG obtained during its preliminary review. End quote. Well, Democrats are certain to take that position when Republicans allege that the whistleblower acting out of bias or acted rather out of bias. Indeed, the transcript of Trump's July 25th call with the Ukrainian president is a public document for all to see. One can read it regardless of the whistleblower's uh, bias. They will argue. Nevertheless, Republicans will want to know more about the origins of the whistleblower complaint, especially given the unorthodox use of the whistleblower law involved. There's more to learn, like who the Democratic candidate is before Republicans will say they know enough about what happened. Also, Representative Jim Jordan uh, said uh, today that he understands why the State Department blocked U.S. Ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland, from testifying before the House Intelligence Committee in a closed-door meeting as part of the impeachment inquiry. House Intelligence Committee Chair Adam Schiff said Sondland had documents relating to Ukraine on his personal device, but the State Department is withholding it from the committee. We understand the reason why the State Department decided not to have Ambassador Sondland appear today. It's based on the unfair and partisan process that Mr. Schiff's Mr. Schiff has been running. You think about what the Democrats are trying to do uh, to impeach the president of the United States 13 months prior to an election based on an anonymous whistleblower with no firsthand knowledge with a bias against the president, Jordan told reporters on Capitol Hill. The guy running the process, Chairman Schiff, didn't even tell us that he had met with the whistleblower prior to the whistleblower filing of the complaint. Well, my understanding is he did not personally meet with the whistleblower. A member of his staff did. Where it went from there is not yet clear. Uh, he went on to say, again, referring to Congressman Jordan, Adam Schiff uh, didn't tell us the way he treated Ambassador Volker in this uh, interview last week. That treatment is the reason why the administration and the State Department said uh, we're not uh, going to subject Ambassador Sondland to the same treatment, the congressman said. Jordan said Republicans on the committee were looking forward to hearing Sondland's testimony because they thought it would reinforce what former U.S. Special Envoy to Ukraine, Kirk Volker, who is also a former ambassador to NATO, told the committee. We were actually looking forward to hearing from Ambassador Sondland. He went on to say 
We thought he was going to reinforce exactly what Ambassador Volker told us this uh, week. But again, unfortunately, when you have a Speaker of the House who says we need to strike while the iron is hot, when you have a chairman of the committee who is so biased against this president that he won't even tell us uh, that he had met with the staff and met with the whistleblower prior to the whistleblower filing of the complaint. And frankly, this is a pattern of Mr. Schiff. He did the same thing. If you remember the uh, the first big hearing the Democrats did this Congress, Michael Cohen, he didn't tell us that his staff had met with Mr. Cohen for hours prior to Mr. Cohen testifying. He didn't tell us that last summer he had met with Mr. Simpson out in Colorado um, palling around with a guy from Fusion GPS. So this is a pattern, the congressman said. So offering an explanation as to why Sondland would not be cooperating at this point until certain features of this inquiry uh, were changed. We'll take a look at the uh, inspector general who has been called upon to explain the window between the Ukraine phone call and the whistleblower's complaint. Now, it's not altogether clear to me why that's significant, but apparently it is. We'll tell you about that in just a few moments. So stay with us. Also, uh, just want to let you know, John Durham, the U.S. attorney reviewing the origins of the 2016 counterintelligence investigation into Russia and the Trump campaign, is widening his investigation, um, noting that there could be some criminality associated with that. And uh, when the people's business will be attended to, that'll be big news. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Intelligence Community Inspector General Michael Atkinson in testimony to lawmakers in the House about the whistleblower complaint on President Trump's phone call with the Ukrainian counterpart couldn't explain what accounted for the 18-day window between the 25th of July and the August 12th complaint. Well, the call took place July 25th. The complaint filing August 12th or when exactly the whistleblower contacted a key Democrat staff source familiar with the uh, testimony says the whistleblower contact with Intelligence Committee Chairman Representative Schiff's staff before filing the complaint, which I understand isn't all that uncommon in mid-August, has prompted renewed scrutiny of the uh, committee chairman. The top Democrat uh, previously said we have not spoken directly to the whistleblower, but his office later revised that claim. Sources familiar with the Atkinson's closed door transcribed interview Friday with members of the House Intelligence Committee also noted that Atkinson said the whistleblower didn't disclose the contact during their 18 day window with Schiff's office. Sources said Atkinson testified that the whistleblower in filing the complaint left blank a section in which he or she could have disclosed that congressional contact. Atkinson revealed that his only knowledge of the contact came from media reports. Sources further have uh, said that Atkinson uh, revealed the whistleblower volunteered. He or she was a registered Democrat, had a prior working relationship with a prominent Democrat politician. Attorneys for the whistleblower at the firm Compass Rose didn't respond to requests for comment on that work history, which is still unknown. Republicans uh, have criticized Schiff for not initially revealing the committee's early contact with the whistleblower. Meanwhile, John Durham, the U.S. attorney reviewing the origins of the 2016 counterintelligence investigation into Russia and the Trump campaign, is probing a wider timeline than previously known, according to senior administration officials. It was previously reported that Durham would be reviewing the days leading up to the 2016 election and through the inauguration. However, based on what uh, he's been finding, Durham has expanded his investigation, adding agents and resources the senior administration officials are saying the timeline has grown from the beginning of the probe through the election and now has included a post-election timeline through the spring of 2017 up to when Robert Mueller was named special counsel. 
Attorney General Bill Barr in Durham, they traveled to Italy recently to talk to law enforcement officials there about the probe and have also uh, had conversations with officials in the U.K. and Australia about the investigation. Uh, Barr assigned Durham, the U.S. attorney in Connecticut, back in May to conduct the inquiry into alleged misconduct and improper surveillance of the Trump campaign in 2016, as well as whether Democrats were the ones who'd improperly colluded with foreign actors. The attorney is uh, gathering information from numerous sources, including a number of foreign countries and Attorney General Barr's uh, request. The president has contacted other countries to ask them to introduce the attorney general and Mr. Durham to appropriate officials. Justice Department uh, is saying Durham, uh, known as a hard charging bulldog prosecutor, according to sources, has been focusing on the use and assignment of FBI informants as well as improper uh, issuance of Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrants or FISA warrants. Uh, Durham was asked to help Barr to ensure that intelligence collection activities by the U.S. government relating to the 2016 uh, presidential campaign were lawful and appropriate. Democrats increasingly have targeted Barr. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said late last month that Barr has gone rogue, alleging an attempted cover-up of the whistleblower complaint that has led to a formal impeachment inquiry. She made the comments on MSNBC's Morning Joe after host Joe Scarborough asked if she was concerned that the country's institutions could fail due to Barr's behavior. Pelosi uh, responded, uh, faulting Barr for instructing the director of national intelligence to bring the whistleblower complaint over a July phone call between Trump and the Ukrainian president to the White House. I think where um, they are going to going is a cover up of cover ups. And that's very, really sad uh, for them. Well, at the time, the president hadn't really had had not yet released the transcript of that conversation. So I'm not sure if that um, Criticism will hold up, but uh, that was what was said at that time. Meanwhile, multiple administration officials say that uh, when Robert Mueller met with the president in May of 2017, he was indeed pursuing the open post as the director of the FBI, something the former Russia probe special counsel denied under oath during congressional testimony this summer. Well, these officials also said that government documents showed Mueller was pursuing the job as a candidate himself. It came as emails released this month through a Freedom of Information Act request by Judicial Watch seemed to indicate Mueller knew there was a real possibility he could be named special counsel if he wasn't chosen as the next FBI director. The boss and his staff uh, do not uh, know about our discussion. Then Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein said in an email to Mueller in May of 2017, Uh, Rosenstein's boss was then Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who had recused himself from the Russia probe, meaning the president would not have uh, known either. A source close to Rosenstein confirmed that he had confidential conversations with Mueller about whether he would be willing to serve in the event he needed to appoint a special counsel. These conversations began May 12th of 2017, and that was prior to Mueller's meeting with the president on the 16th. Uh, according to sources. Well, at the time, the now famous May 16th meeting, James Comey uh, had been fired as FBI director just days before. And unbeknownst to the president, Mueller would end up being named special counsel the very next day to oversee the Trump Russia probe. The president has repeatedly claimed that Mueller, who served as FBI director under President George W. Bush and Barack Obama, met with him about returning to lead the Justice Department. The president has pointed to Uh, This uh, to argue that it was a conflict for Mueller to become special counsel, saying he opted against hiring Mueller as FBI director. But Mueller, in his July congressional testimony, denied that claim, saying he believed he was giving input to the president about the position. 
My understanding was I was not applying for the job, Mueller said on the 24th of July. I was asked to give my input on what it would take to do the job. John Dowd, who served as the president's attorney during that probe, ripped Mueller for the meeting with uh, Trump, calling it the most dishonorable conduct I have ever witnessed, end quote. Uh, He added that Captain Robert Mueller, USMC, sits in front of his commander in chief being interviewed for FBI director, knowing he is going to investigate the president and never says a word, end quote. The president himself had claimed there were numerous witnesses to that meeting. It has been reported that Robert Mueller is saying that he did not apply and uh, interview for the job with as FBI director um, got turned down the day before he was wrongfully appointed special counsel. So there's a dispute over that, which seems to have been resolved, although Mr. Mueller says he understood he was talking more generally about the position rather than being considered to fill that position. Well, that's where things stand at this point, and the saga continues. Meanwhile, the Riverdale Board of Education approved a second-year teaching contract for young Elizabeth Warren, documents show. And that's a contradiction of the Democratic presidential candidate's repeated claims that she was asked not to return to teaching after a single year because she was visibly pregnant. In fact, in her own words in 1971, or in an interview much later, she admitted as much. Well, minutes of an April 21, 1971 Riverdale Board of Education meeting obtained by the Washington Free Beacon show that the board voted unanimously on a motion to extend her second-year contract for a two-days-per-week teaching job. That job is similar to the one she held the previous year, her first year of teaching. Minutes from the board meeting held two months later on the 16th of June indicate that Warren's resignation was accepted with regret. Warren's claim that she was dismissed after her first year of teaching because she was pregnant has become a cornerstone of her stump speeches. She's used it to both explain her jump from teaching into the legal world, as well as to showcase the difficulties that women face in the workplace. The principal of the school she worked at in the early 70s, Warren has said, showed her the door at the end of the school year because she was visibly pregnant. Warren's campaign didn't respond to a request for comment on the Board of Education records or video of um, Warren saying precisely what the minutes said in an interview some years later, that she decided on her own to leave. Is she embellishing her uh, resume for political gain? Well, some are suggesting this is a pattern. You can decide for yourself. 30 minutes after 5, we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, North Korea ramped up its provocations. They fired a medium-range submarine-launched ballistic missile 450 kilometers or 280 miles at a lofted trajectory of 910 kilometers or 565 miles on Tuesday night that landed in Japan's exclusive economic zone. Had the uh, missile flown on a normal rather than lofted trajectory, it would have flown some 1,900 uh, kilometers or 1,180 miles. Medium-range ballistic missiles are those with ranges between 620 and 2,175 miles. Well, North Korea successfully tested submarine-launched ballistic missiles in 2016 and 2017 from test barges and its sole missile capture submarine. Well, back in July... Pyongyang revealed a new improved submarine with three ballistic missile firing tubes and an upgrade from the earlier single launch tube submarine. The regime announced that it would operate the sea of in the Sea of Japan. South Korea currently has no defenses against North Korean submarine launched ballistic missiles, which are assessed as being capable of carrying nuclear warheads. 
South Korean naval ships are equipped with the standard missile um, two missile, uh, which has no anti-ballistic missile capability. Well, Seoul is in discussions with the United States over procuring the same, which would provide ballistic missile defense capability. Pyongyang already violated U.N. resolutions 20 times this year by launching short-range ballistic missiles from their four newly revealed weapons systems. And they've announced the submarine-launched ballistic missile was a new, um, uh, it's a Puk, let's get this um, as close as possible, Puk-Guk-Zong-3, making it the fifth new weapon system developed this year. Again, outside of what is acceptable by U.N. standards. With a submarine-launched ballistic missile launch, North Korea is close to its record-high year of launches in 2016 when it conducted 24 missile launches. The dictator um, promised to, to President Donald Trump not to conduct nuclear or intercontinental ballistic missile tests is irrelevant since 11 U.N. resolutions preclude any nuclear or missile testing regardless of range. North Korea is crossing of yet another red line occurred shortly after it had agreed to resume working level diplomatic meetings with the U.S. counterparts to discuss denuclearization. The long delayed resumption of these um, working level meetings is a welcome, though minimalist step forward. But once again, North Korea indicating it has no intention of uh, curtailing its missile program. Well, in the aftermath of last month's Saudi oil field attack, uh, believed um, to have been carried out by Iran, cybersecurity experts have detected an uptick in Iranian movement, and they contend it aims to both guard our nation's um, against retaliation and to launch its own attack in the shadowy arena of cyberspace, the battlefield where fewer are physically hurt, but a lot of damage can be done. David Kennedy, who's the founder and CEO of Trusted Sec, or SEC, and former U.S. military intelligence analyst, said both the U.S. and Iran are maneuvering in this space right now, again, cyberspace, and we will see ongoing attacks from both sides. The key question is how far will they go and how much the situation escalates. Iran has been aggressive over the past several years when it comes to cyber attacks. Its back is against the wall, and it has less to lose from a cyber war with the United States. Well, President Trump has long expressed his hesitation for the Islamic Republic of Iran. The country has remained at the forefront of his foreign policy decisions, subject both to economic and military threats. Nonetheless, he's also advocated for getting the U.S. out of the Middle East and becoming further embroiled in protracted Conflicts making counter uh, rather cyber attacks and digital warfare effective and clean handed methods to cripple Tehran further and demonstrate American strength. However, Tehran has the same capacity. Iran is currently preparing for an attack and seems to be slowing their current attacks as a matter of readiness, says the chief intelligence officer at cybersecurity firm Treadstone 71. All critical infrastructures are moving to higher readiness levels. Well, information intercepted by Treadstone 71 in recent weeks shows that Iran has summoned its critical forces and facilities at an orange level of preparedness urgency, issuing orders to gas refineries, uh, petrochemical uh, uh, projects, complexes, uh, terminals, health facilities and oil fields. Orange level, according to experts, refers to the high probability hazard. The order... um, A letter was published in the days after the Saudi oil field attack by Iranian news agency uh, Ilna, uh, but the document was promptly deleted. A number of petrochemical websites have been determined uh, to be already compromised, and Stredstrom's analysis report uh, says that it remains exactly how and by whom uh, the question that's being raised. Um, 
unleashing the brunt of cyber weaponry isn't without blowback and consequences. In recent years, Iran has emerged as one of the world's most potent global forces in cybersecurity. So there is a concern that this could happen. Iran may be a uh, cyber may have cyber capabilities to disrupt Gulf state and Saudi facilities to further drive up oil prices. And Iran has been working for several years to build their national uh, Internet under the protection of their Chinese firewall named um, I won't even attempt the name. Uh, they also have been working to push their own versions of social media programs, trying to prohibit or greatly limit access to Facebook, Telegram, Twitter and Instagram, to name a few. Tehran is said to be uh, pushing these apps via uh, a, a funded Cafe Bazaar, their version of Google Play Store. Uh, they're looking to build their own cell phones, um, but realize that the Android operating system will still come with vulnerabilities regardless. Uh, they focused on the petrochemical, energy, and financial sector, but admittedly haven't spent a good deal of time on other areas, including biohazards, food, and water supply. Uh, for years, Iran has been uh, preparing cyber battalions made up of regular citizens and now boasts thousands of them using the same strategy used in Iran, Iraq in the war in the 80s, focused in the sheer number of soldiers involved um, in this cyber attack. During that war, Iran used cheaper resources to clear minefields that um, uh, uh, and today they see a. Uh, seem to be following the same methodology while protecting the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and highly trained cyber special forces for critical cyber combat roles. Now, is this uh, boots on the ground or is this all in the um, in the cyber world? Uh, and while cyberspace, they go on to say, may seem bloodless, experts also underscored that a cyber attack could inflict more damage immediately than military action, something that is being prepared for and anticipated. Well, apparently there was no mercy for Mercy Corps that's been shaken by a sexual abuse allegations against its co-founder. According to the Oregonian, Mercy Corps confirmed today that a long serving board member resigned um, as uh, the organization or as uh, the Oregonian rather was preparing to publish an investigation that shows the world renowned International Relief Agency mishandled sexual abuse allegations against one of its founders. The Oregonian found that Mercy Corps executives knew that the co-founder had been credibly accused by his uh, daughter of serial sexual abuse in the early 90s, but allowed him to continue at Mercy Corps in a top role for more than a decade. The $460 million a year charity twice rebuffed Culver's daughter 25 years ago when she first detailed her allegations to the organization officials, and again last year when she asked them to reexamine how they conducted the initial review. That initial review was undertaken by board member uh, Robert Newell, co-founder Dan O'Neill, and then board chairman Raymond Vath. Mercy Corps CEO Neil Kenny Geyer confirmed on Tuesday that Newell had resigned from the board after Mercy Corps was informed of the news organization's findings. Newell, who Kenny Geyer once uh, called the heart and soul of Mercy Corps, served on the board since its founding in 1981, founding rather in 81. He also serves as treasurer and is partner of the Davis Wright Tremaine law firm here in Portland. Newell is 72. He declined to answer questions about his interactions with Humphrey and his role in the review. But in a written statement, Newell on Tuesday said the board took Humphrey's allegations very seriously when they were brought to their attention. And he called the investigation uh, challenging uh, and said it was unclear at the time why the state's child welfare authorities had not intervened. But nothing changes the fact that no one should endure what she has described, especially not as a child, at the hands of her father, Newell wrote. It is as uh, troubling to me now as it was back then. 
Now, the question that the Oregonian has raised is if it was as troubling back then, why uh, the individual was allowed to remain in such a position of influence and on the board of directors. Well, the Portland-based relief agency on Monday also scrubbed warm tributes to Culver from its website. It took down photos and tributes uh, from the walls of its headquarters. Uh, After his daughter's original accusations, Culver remained a prominent figure with Mercy Corps and continued to serve as its public face, meeting with global leaders, spearheading efforts to expand into China until his death in 2005. Humphrey, now 48, told the Oregonian that her father abused her from preschool into high school. She said she told Mercy Corps leaders uh, that her father had um, done so um, and described in some detail, which I will not do here. But after its initial review of Humphrey's allegations, Mercy Corps determined there was insufficient evidence to support those allegations. Uh, Last fall, however, after Humphrey's husband contacted Mercy Corps and said his wife was suffering from the trauma of those events, the humanitarian organization eventually replied that it stood by its original assessment. Well, the news organization typically does not name victims of uh, sexual abuse, but Humphrey requested that she be identified in this case which has now been done. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, in our last segment today, we'll talk about uh, the UK that has said that a Christian uh, doctor who um, demonstrated fidelity to his faith and to science, that both were incompatible with human dignity. We'll explain what happened and how when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Glenn Sunshine. How'd you like a name like Sunshine? He's the author of The Kingdom Unleashed, How Jesus' First Century Kingdom Values Are Transforming Thousands of Cultures and Awakening His Church. That's coming up on Wednesday. On Thursday, we'll talk with Andrew McCarthy, author of Ball of Collusion, The Plot to Rig and Destroy a Presidency, the book published by Encounter. He'll join us on Thursday. And then, as I've mentioned, on Friday, I'm planning on spending uh, the day and the following um, evening uh, at a women's retreat at my sister's church. I'm looking forward to just hanging out with family and studying God's Word with a group of women from Southwest Bible Church. So, That's uh, where I will be, and we'll share one of the best of the Georgine Rice Show programs with you on that day. Well, a a Christian doctor's fidelity to his faith and to science has been deemed incompatible with human dignity in the U.K. Well, the United Kingdom Tribunal ruled against a Christian doctor's discrimination claim, saying that his view of what it means to be male and female is incompatible with human dignity. Dr. David um, Macarith, a 56-year-old former disability claim assessor, had filed a claim that the Department of, for Work and Pensions discriminated against him after he was suspended for refusing to use transgender pronouns. Now, the doctor said that he is deeply concerned by the July ruling, according to the BBC. As a Christian, he says, I would not be able to accede to such a request in good conscience. Uh, Macrath told a manager before he was suspended from his job in June of 2018, saying that he would not refer to any six-foot-tall bearded man as Madam, the BBC reported. Well, Macrath said that as a Christian, his religious beliefs are relevant and protected characteristics, court documents show. The doctor cited Genesis 127 in defense of his Christian beliefs. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, them, male and female, he created them. He quoted from Scripture according to the court documents, uh, dated July of this year. But the Department of Work and Pensions panel ruled that uh, Dr. Macarath's biblical view of gender conflicted with fundamental rights. Irrespective of our determinations above, all three heads believe 
In Genesis 1.27, lack of belief in transgenderism and conscientious objection to transgenderism in our judgment are incompatible with human dignity and conflict with the fundamental rights of others, specifically here, transgender individuals, end quote. Well, Mac, Dr. Macarith uh, intends to appeal that decision, according to the BBC. He now works as an emergency doctor in Shropshire, according to The Independent. Without intellectual and moral integrity, medicine cannot function, and my 30 years as a doctor are now considered irrelevant compared to the risk that someone else might be offended, he said. I believe that I have uh, to appeal in order to fight for the freedom of Christians to speak the truth, he added, if they cannot then freedom of speech has died in this country with serious ramifications for the practical medicine in the UK. The Christian Legal Center Chief Executive Andrea Williamson said the decision could have seismic consequences if it is upheld for anyone who is prepared to believe and say that we are created male and female. Once again, uh, reported by the BBC, it is deeply disturbing. She went on to say that this is the first time in the history of uh, English law that a judge has ruled that free citizens must engage in compelled speech. Well, the Department for Work and Pensions spokesperson told the BBC that the department acted to protect claimants from behavior that would have failed to treat them with dignity. So we welcome this ruling. We expect all assessments to approach their work sensitively, uh, the official said. Well, again, the doctor is now working uh, in emergency medicine, so he's still practicing medicine, but not in the position that he had been in as an assessor. He is planning to appeal that decision, and we'll certainly follow the um, uh, the story. Again, Dr. Macrath now it works as an emergency doctor in Shropshire in Western England. He expressed his concern about the ruling, saying his 30 years as a doctor are now considered irrelevant compared to the risk that someone else might be offended. He said he would appeal that decision. He argued in favor of science, uh, backing him up as well as his faith, which he believed reflected um, uh, what is true about males and females. Again, that in the U.K., I shared a story earlier in the day. You may want to check that out on our podcast about the fact that there are a significant number of individuals who have had um, transition surgeries that are now seeking reversals. And this is a growing trend. Uh, It's a rather interesting conversation to consider, particularly in view of so many uh, very young children who are encouraged to take um, puberty blocking drugs. We don't know the long term impact of those drugs and some moving forward with transition surgeries that uh, many who have had them now as adults are looking to have reversed. One of the uh, stories that we talked about was a young woman who was uh, very young when she had the procedure done. Uh, discovered that it did not resolve the issue, the inner conflict that she had had, and this reflected in the thousands of others who were also seeking reversals. Uh, You might want to check that out in view of uh, this story as well. It was in the first part of today's program, in the first half hour. So you can do that at kpdq.com. Look for the podcast. Um, uh, The podcast is um, by date, and I know sometimes I receive calls from people saying I can't find that particular thing. We do a number of subjects in the course of a day. So if you're interested in going back and listening listening to a subject, it's always best if you can Make note of the date that you heard it. And that can be something of a challenge because we don't itemize what's um, what's on the podcast. I do uh, keep an itemized list of what we discuss during the course of a program. So sometimes you can call the station and I can look it up for you. 
but it's best to know the date that you heard a particular segment. And if you can remember if it was in the first hour or the second hour, then you don't have to listen through the whole podcast, although I wouldn't discourage you from doing that either. Uh, in any event, it was today's program in the first half hour if you're interested in learning more about that. Once again, on Wednesday, we are going to um, talk with Glenn Sunshine. He is the author of The Kingdom Unleashed, How Jesus' First Century Kingdom Values Are Transforming Thousands of Cultures and Awakening His Church. A couple of reminders. I wanted to encourage you to save the date. On November 9th, we have the Paid in Full Founders Banquet. Uh, The theme this year is Breaking Chains, and it's giving inmates an opportunity to rise above their past to a better future. We had uh, the uh, the good judge on our program just a week or so ago and uh, talked a bit about that. You can uh, go to the website and um, RSVP or you can email um, judge uh, the judge at Tom at paid in full Oregon dot org uh, to let them know that you'd like to come again. That's November 9th, 6 to 830. Uh, the paid in full banquet that is in Hillsboro at the Northwest Events Center. Also, we had. Um, My good friend Samuel Hakim on the program, inviting you to attend and learn more about uh, Redeeming the Nation's Ministries and the work that they're doing. That's coming up. That's next Sunday. And you can go to their website if you'd like to come and be a part of that banquet and learn more about what's happening um, with Muslims around the country and Islam in general uh, from a Christian perspective and the work that they are doing using technology and um, the media to communicate the message of the gospel, you can go to their website, redeemingthenationsministries.org. So a couple of things to keep in mind. Uh, One other thing I'll mention for those of you who join us in the latter part of the program, generally there's always an author interview, and today our interview is with Jeff Lucas. The book is Notorious, an integrated study of the rogues, scoundrels, and scallywags of Scripture. In addition to the book, which is designed for group discussion, There's also other resources, a study guide, as well as a a video series to go along with that. You can check that out in the second half hour of the first hour of today's program. Again, you can listen in on the podcast to learn more. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll join us tomorrow when we have a conversation with Glenn Sunshine, The Kingdom Unleashed, How Jesus' First Century Kingdom Values Are Transforming Thousands of Cultures and Awakening His Church. We'll also continue to follow the um, ongoing debate over impeachment proceedings in um, Washington, and I hope you are praying that the that um, truth and justice will out in this long and arduous process, and that somehow, in the margins, they might be able to actually accomplish something for the American people. Have a great night. Hope you'll join us tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.